Our scripture reading tonight is, as it was this morning, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll read together 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It's on page 1,259. And I want this evening to focus in particular upon the great blessings that are ours anticipated when the Lord Jesus comes to grant us rest. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at the first verse. Let us listen now to this word the Lord speaks to us. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the, in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at among all those who have believed, because of our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in the verses 6 through 10, that the apostle speaks of when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed, he will grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. And that at his coming, verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, he will be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. The Lord bless this reading and our hearing together of his word this evening. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come again to the teaching of the Word of God concerning that great event which will conclude all of God's redemptive purposes in history, the coming again, or as the Apostle Paul describes it, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of this present age. Now, I suggested to you this morning that we're probably more secular, myself included, than we dare to admit. We don't have, as a people who live in a land of relative prosperity and don't know firsthand the degree to which many of our brothers and sisters in the world today, like the church in Thessalonica, know what it is to suffer greatly for Christ's kingdom's sake. And that can steal from us the desire that he should come and come quickly to relieve us 
of our distress, to bring us the fullness of salvation, to end that affliction and trouble that so often marks the life of God's church in the world. Now, we can learn things from children. This is just a silly illustration, but it happened in northwest Iowa, outside of the town of Hospers, on a farmyard when I was an intern, a student, serving there for the summer. And it's this. I was visiting a a family there, and we were standing talking on the driveway, and there was a flash of lightning across the sky. The sun glanced off a jet as it flew overhead. And one of the little girls of this young couple shouted aloud, Look, it's Jesus! <laughs> uh, the little children, how silly they are. But it always stuck with me. She had a better sense of what our catechism says in Lord's Lord's Day 19 than most of us do. You know what the posture of a Christian is according to Lord's Day 19, the question and answer that we read this morning? We're people not with heads cast down. We're not people who are looking in the rear view mirror to see what has already happened. It says when we think and contemplate the reality of our Lord's coming, we are a people whose posture is with heads uplifted, looking, waiting, eagerly anticipating. I don't know many husbands or wives who don't know in terms of the countdown How many days till wedding day? At least the bride knows, if not the bridegroom. She can give you the exact number, usually. Well, when the Lord Jesus comes, he will receive his bride and all of her beauty and radiance in her fullness, without blemish. And it will be a wedding ceremony represented to us in the vision of Revelation 21 like no wedding that has ever been celebrated, however full of joy it might have been, in this life. And I say all of that because tonight as we look at this event of our Lord's revelation, His coming at the end of the age, the emphases of the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica in respect to the glory and the blessedness of our Lord's coming should captivate us and make us a people who do more often have our heads uplifted as we look for the day of our Lord's coming. He mentions basically three great blessings by way of consequence for God's church, the bride of Christ, when Christ is revealed. Unlike that affliction with which he will afflict the unrighteous and wreak vengeance and cast them away unto everlasting destruction. He says, for God's people, it means in the first place, perfect rest. You might say perfect rest for a war-weary, beleaguered, and troubled church. Perfect rest. He will grant relief to those who are now afflicted. Rest. Perfect rest. The second thing he says is that Christ will be glorified 
in His people, in His bride, in His church, in those whom He purchased with His own precious blood. And then lastly, He speaks of how Christ will be marveled at. After all, it's a revelation. We see Him when He comes, when He is revealed, and His people, says the Apostle, will marvel. Those who have believed will marvel, all of them, because our testimony to you, he says, was believed. Now let's consider those, each one in turn, this evening. Notice the language in verse 7. To grant relief, you could translate it rest, to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. Now, I mentioned briefly this morning that you have to understand that this letter was written to a church, a particular church, the church in Thessalonica, and it was no, as I put it this morning, no walk in the park to be a member of Christ's church, to love his kingdom, and seek his will in the church of Thessalonica. We're told, for example, in Acts chapter 17, that this church was born within the chaos and the strife of great opposition and much trouble. We're told that some Jews aroused a mob of Gentiles against the church in Thessalonica, and Paul himself was compelled to flee the city. And that had continued to be the case for this church from its earliest beginning until the writing of this letter. Notice what Paul says there in verse 4 of, of chapter 1. Therefore we ourselves boast about you. Isn't that interesting? A pastor goes about boasting. My congregation, let me tell you, these are a people who are stalwart in their commitment to the Lord. This is no lazy bones congregation. No well, when the sun shines, fair weather friends sorts of followers of Jesus, these people are the real thing. Let me tell you about them. I don't know how many pastors go about boasting uh, about the glorious work and steadfastness of their congregation, but Paul does. He says, we ourselves boast about you Thessalonians in the churches of God. Why? Because of your steadfastness. You set your hand to the plow and you don't look back. And you have been persistent in faith in the midst of what? Persecutions. In the midst of afflictions. That you are, not were or have, but are experiencing. This was a congregation that knew what the church concluded, and it's recorded in the book of Acts chapter 4, that in this time between the times for God's people, it's only through much tribulation that we enter the kingdom. That's why the authors of that little phrase, and I think it's the profession of faith form, were informed by Scripture that when believers profess their faith, they have expectation of sometime entering into the fullness of salvation after what? They have suffered a little while. Suffered a little while. 
or as another expression that we moderns look upon with disfavor, this life which is nothing but a constant death. We're more sunnily optimistic in our context and outlook on things. But this was a church that by virtue of its commitment to Jesus Christ, profession that he is Lord, not Caesar, and his kingdom is the only kingdom, and his will is the only will, that we will honor God helping us. Come what may, whatever we may suffer, they remain steadfast. They did not relinquish their hold upon the gospel or turn away by virtue of the troubles and the afflictions that was their lot. Now you can understand what Paul is holding out to them when he says to them, when Christ is revealed, those who afflict you, he will afflict them. You will be granted rest. What was it that God promised his people already under the old covenant dispensation? Rest in a new and better country flowing with milk and honey in a place where he would dwell in their midst and they would be in his presence. And what is it that God promises us in Christ? Well, the author of Hebrews calls it that, a new and better country. A place where our troubles are no more, long forgotten. When the, in the new order of things, as the author of Revelation puts it, there is no more curse. No more the creation groaning as a woman in travail, in frustration and futility. No more dwelling in a, in a tent. Groaning as we anticipate putting on immortality. Receiving that eternal home body that God has prepared for us. When this body of our humiliation puts on the glory of Christ's incorruptible, indestructible life. What the Apostle is telling us then is the expectation of every Christian is that there will be no end to our troubles, the trials, the conflicts, the difficulties that belong to a man or a woman who's serious about the things of God's kingdom until Christ comes. The end point, the great hope, the blessed hope of every Christian is ultimately not that the kingdom will be brought to the earth prior to Christ's coming, and everything will be as it ought to be, like these modern utopians who think that they've got some kind of kingdom cause that they're going to accomplish in history. And it usually turns out rather badly. Think communism. Think national socialism. Think any kind of political manifesto that thinks that we can accomplish and bring in righteousness and peace to the earth. 
No, only when Christ comes. At the day of His revelation, will that which we long for and yearn to see, that new and better country, that city that, has with, that is without foundations, that new and blessed kingdom in its fullness of righteousness and peace, it comes only when Christ is revealed. I don't know, brothers and sisters, if you're on the battlefield, you long for home. I can still remember in the Gulf War a few years ago, it was rather moving. These men on the field of battle would write on their tanks, Chicago through Baghdad, that's where I'm from. They were in the midst of the dust and the fury and the agony of war. What steeled their hearts? What was it for which they longed? To go home. To be at rest. To be at peace. To know an end to this terrible warfare. And Paul holds out to the church in Thessalonica and God's word holds out to us the eager anticipation when Christ comes he will grant his people perfect rest and joy. Now the second thing he mentions is that they, he that is Christ when he comes he will be glorified in his saints. Now, prepositions are important. I mentioned that this morning. It doesn't say glorified by his saints. That could well be true. To be glorified by his saints means that when Christ is revealed and is manifested at his second coming, we will see him and we will praise and worship and fall down before him as one would expect. When the bridegroom comes, the bride is delighted. And she rejoices to see him. But the preposition here is, he will be glorified in his saints. Now let me try to explain that a little bit. What that means, I believe, is that when Christ's work in respect to his blood-bought bride, reaches its conclusion. When she is become, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, by the washing of water and the word, a radiant bride, without any blemishes. Is that true of this assembly this evening? We're, an, we're radiant. We're unblemished. We've got no faults in all respects and particulars we measure up. Perfect! No, I don't think so. Only when Christ comes will the work of His conforming us by the powerful working of His Spirit after His image will that be completed. And we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we will see Him as He is. And we will be a presentable bride 
who has no occasion or reason to be ashamed or embarrassed or downcast in His presence because we'll be more lovely, more radiant, more lustrous, more delightful to the heavenly bridegroom than sorry wives, any earthly wife has ever been to her husband on their wedding day. Now, i got to tell you, I was a little worried when I married my wife that it was going to be one of these runaway bride situations. I was hoping against hope that she would be foolish enough to appear on our wedding day. That she wouldn't have second thoughts and dash out. Whenever I tell her that, she always doesn't like it very well because she's a Vingorp, but that's another story. Uh, she did show up. And I'll take second place to no one in saying, wow, <laughs> there's a bride. I'm exhilarated that she comes down the aisle see it today just as well as I could almost 50 years ago. Now, am I speaking a word in season to any husband out there? You glory in your bride. And this is what Paul is talking about. He says, when all of the hard work of our Lord's suffering, bloodshed to wash us clean, to give us pure garments, the garments of a proper bride who is suitable and fitted for fellowship, communion, unembarrassed, and perfect. I don't think we think about this very much. God not only delights, we not only delight in God, but He delights in us. He delights over us. It says in the prophecy of, I think it's Zephaniah, just as a bridegroom glories over and delights in the bride whom he loves, when Christ is appearing and revealed, and his work in and for us has brought us to the place of his appointment, such that we are perfectly conformed to His image in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, dressed in the garments of a proper bride. You read that Revelation uh, vision there in chapter 21. She shines, dazzles with a beauty that is incomparable. Alabaster that is pure and undiluted. Can you imagine how Christ, when He is revealed, will delight in this great union between Himself and His church, having made her just the way she ought to be. Perfect. Dazzling. Altogether lovely. So that he will rejoice in her, be glorified in his saints, even as they glorify him. 
There's one final thing that he talks about, and it's this, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Now, what is it to marvel? Marvel isn't a garden variety kind of admiration. Wow, that's really significant. No, marvel is to be, you might say, with wide-eyed astonishment. You're almost overwhelmed by what you see. It's too majestic. It's too good. Are my eyes deceiving me? Can it be true? You see, it fits with the imagery of the coming of Christ as a revelation. We saw that this morning. That means He will be unveiled. Coming not in weakness, but in power and majesty. In glory and in splendor. And as the Apostle Peter says, we who have believed in Him, have believed in Him, even though we have never seen Him unveiled in all of His splendor and glory. Now, it's hard to find analogies for that, but can you imagine a couple who are engaged, but her husband, before wedding day, goes in the army to the battlefield. You can well imagine she prays earnestly daily that he be protected so as to be able to come home. And you can well imagine that when she gets report that he's alive and well and he is coming home, when she sees him step down from the plane, enter the airport terminal, marvel would be a good word, right? A splendid word. I, a number of years ago, read a uh, very interesting biography by a former governor of the state of Indiana by the name of uh, Whitcomb. He had been in World War II in the Pacific, in the battlefield, uh, on the islands of the Pacific. And his, the book was entitled Escape from Caricador. He had been in the death march, taken prison, prisoner uh, under the Japanese. And anyway, as he tells the story of what he experienced during World War II, it through a whole series of events, he was first taken captive, then he escaped, then he was recaptured, then it was reported that he was perhaps uh, missing in action, presumed dead, and that he had, at some point or another, the military was wondering whether he had made common cause with the enemy. He had betrayed his country. Well, anyway, you don't know the particulars, need to know the particulars of the story, but as he tells it, this is pre phones you know, cell phones and all means of easy communication internationally. His parents, who lived on a farm in Indiana, for at least two years were of the conviction that he was probably dead. And they had no contact or word to the contrary. But he ended up finally released, brought back to the United States, in the vicinity of Washington, B.C., and he's allowed to call his parents. And he does. And when his mother answers the phone, he says, Hello, Mom, it's Wilbur. Wilbur? He's alive. Not dead. I have a ticket. I'll be arriving at the station at the town nearby to our home on the farm two days hence. 
And this is the part of the story that I want to call to your attention. What did his parents do? They went to the train station immediately. And they waited for two days. Now, is the word marvel the right word to use to describe what they experienced when their lost son, presumed dead, came down from that train? Well, that's just a silly illustration. By comparison, brothers and sisters, to a people who believe in the Lord Jesus and who confess that He died to save us from our sins is a beautiful Savior who loves His people with a perfect love that is seated now at the Father's right hand will come again to judge the living and the dead. I dare say that some of us when He appears, when He is revealed, if we live to see it, if He tarry, not tarry, you'll be quite Surely among those who will marvel. You'll marvel. When the Lord Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, appears to receive His bride and to delight in His bride and to bring her... You know, what happens when you're married? Well, you carry the bride across the threshold into the home. The domicile, the house. Well, maybe you don't, but you know that old practice. And that too, we're told in the Word of God, is what our bridegroom has prepared for us. A home in which to dwell. A world in which to live in His presence. And to sing His praise. And to serve Him and serve others in His name. In our new country, which is new and better than any homeland or country that can be imagined upon this earth. Such are the blessings which we as Christ's church expect when the Lord Jesus is revealed. May God grant to us an eagerness, a true and constant anticipation and desire that the Lord Jesus would come, and as the Scriptures say, would come quickly for us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for the promise of the gospel that our Lord Jesus will come. He will be revealed. He will grant us rest from all that presently troubles us in all respects, that he will at his coming, delight as he is glorified in his bride, in all of her beauty and perfection. And that for us, that will be a great day of rejoicing, marveling at his revelation. May that be part and parcel of what we anticipate and expect and look forward to in the glorious future that awaits us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing as our response congregation number 390 in the Trinity Psalter hymnal, Christ is Coming, 390.